Hi, this is Paul, and this is Rough Draft for Sunday, where I run through the current version of my Sunday sermon. A little distraction on the screen. Let's get rid of that. The Christian Informed Church over the last 30 years has really invested in Lent. Uh, the Christian Informed Church gets really selective about its application of the liturgical seasons, I think. In the time of my grandfather, it would be unthinkable for the Christian Reformed Church to observe Lent. And so for many Christian Reformed people, this this church year is a little bit strange. Um, the liturgical calendar is really a series of alternating seasons. And many of some of the seasons are feasting season. That's like the season of Christmas, um, Easter. And other seasons are fasting seasons. And these seasons celebrate the, the movement of God among us. Fasting seasons, there's confession, there's lament. Now, as I was sharing with my mother when I was in New England last week, it's a little bit ironic because, well, they're not going to eat beef or pork, but their, um, their fasting will include lobster, shrimp, and wonderful fish from the sea. So um, it's really hard to know if the if uh, what's the fasting and what's the feasting if you're eating that really good food during your fasting seasons. Anyway, the fasting seasons are designed to be um, purposefully withholding so as to train in righteousness, and then there are parts of the year that are normal time. Now. I've been following the narrative lectionary, not the um, revised common lectionary. And in the narrative lectionary, you'll notice that there's a series of parables during Lent. Um, we had a guest preacher last week. I don't know what he preached on. I don't think he was paying it paying attention to the lectionary. Um, labors in the vineyard, the wedding banquet, that's this week, parable of the bridesmaids, parable of the sheep and the goats. And then you get to Palm Sunday and you, you feel this ambiguity. Jesus is being welcomed into the city as the great king, but we will find Jesus weeping. And many in the, sea, <clears throat> many in the city will not receive him. The powerful and the mighty won't receive him, but many of the common people do. And that'll pick up some of the themes from the parable of the wedding banquet that we'll read today. And, and also Good Friday, which seems like an absolute catastrophe for people's assumptions about what Jesus should be doing and how it's going to be rolled out, then becomes celebrated as really, you know, one of the most important moments in Jesus' ministry. Now, these stories are an arena that we're invited into, and that's part of the reason for a liturgical calendar that you can sort of live within throughout the year. And we're invited to explore our agency in this arena, which is why you have these fasting seasons and these feasting seasons. Now, we've been, we've been noting Tom Holland's uh, great observation that these stories have been found to be engaging throughout the history that they've been recorded and disseminated, and, and they continually to be broadly um, powerful. I was doing a little bit of work this week on the Jesus People movement as the Jesus Revolution movie is out, and it's very interesting how much just reading the Gospels impacted a lot of these people who were 
going in a hippie way and doing a lot of drugs and, you know, just reading these stories of Jesus. They wanted to live into these stories of Jesus. And they, they, they wanted to dress like Jesus and act like Jesus and heal like Jesus and have no possessions like Jesus. And, and I mean, this character of Jesus just, just grips people. And every generation and nation seems to find these stories engaging. But these stories and these parables um, expose a deep pattern of relationships that are played out between ourselves and God across times and places. And, and what we'll note, we'll do a little bit of this, I don't want to get too bogged down in this during the sermon, but one of the fun things about studying the Bible is if you pay some attention to history of interpretation, because what you discover is that different ages in the church, people have taken these very same texts and understood them in different ways. This is sometimes seen in the modern period as somehow a threat to the text, but even when I look at modern preaching, it's pretty much the job of all preachers to take this text, apply it to the people, and bring the people homiletically in terms of the sermon into a place where they feel like they're in the text and the text comes alive to them. Now, the story begins with the very obvious setup. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Now again, Jesus is, keeps preaching on the kingdom of heaven. This is God's rule. It's the application of what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and somehow the kingdom... The coming of the kingdom, the existence of the kingdom is like a situation like this where there's a king. Um, who is the king? It's not hard to figure out. Who's preparing a wedding banquet for his son? Well, who is the son of the king in this context? It's not hard to figure out. Like I said, in a little while, Jesus will be going into Palm Sunday into the city of the great king, coming as the son of God, that's the prince, coming into his kingdom. So all of these themes are there. What's very interesting is, um, who is the bride? So he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Now, Part of what we wrestle with in our own current libertarian time is that we have lost a sense from the ancient world of obligation. Uh, those invited were likely the nobility, the best and the brightest, and the elites of the kingdom, and they would, would be to come to the banquet and to celebrate with the king. And this is not an invitation you should refuse. It's not an invitation that can e be easily refused. This is an obligation at least as strong as having to go to work or having to visit grandma or, or having to do all sorts of things that you simply must do. And so, because after all, the king owns everything and the people are his subjects. They're not citizens. And to not attend such a celebration is an insult. It's, you really wouldn't want to, be, want to miss it because there'll likely be some very important things in the kingdom that happen at that party. But so to, to purposely not come is to insult the king, to defy the king, and, and just to sort of blow it off is a minor act of rebellion. Now, this has always been sort of chewed on in the history of interpretation. And if you look at this in terms of the context of Israel, well, this is the king of Israel and the best of Israel don't want to come. 
This can be seen in the context of the church where the king of the church calls his people to to attend this great celebration. It's every week this happens with worship, for example. And, well, you can see how this parable plays out in all these different contexts. But, but again, I want to ask the question, well, okay, we have the king and the groom. Who's the bride? Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I've prepared my dinner. Um, in case you haven't heard, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered and everything is ready. Um, come to the wedding banquet. Now, this is normally not done because you don't need to be told twice. Everyone should be showing up. But the king is being very generous. He's being magnanimous. And so he's, he's feeling the insult, but he's overlooking the slight. And he's saying, okay, um, you know, the food is going to be great, as you should have assumed. Everything is going to be wonderful, as you should have assumed. Um, the time is now. Now, this might be seen as sort of weakness by people because, again, if it's a tyrannical king, everyone would come right away because they fear. But maybe the king isn't a tyrant. Are these subjects ignorant or rebellious? Now, but they paid no attention. And they went off, one to his field and another to his business. Well, what is this? Well, Apparently, on their social calendars, they're too busy prioritizing the mundane that, you know, the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man on the moon. Um, it's a song about a father who doesn't make any time for his son, and then the son doesn't make any time for his father. They prioritize the mundane but ironically, in the kingdom, the mundane itself is the gift of the king. He owns all of that. Um, there's no gratitude for the ordinary among these people. They think somehow they can simply live in the land, off the land, and not show any gratitude to the king himself. Now it continues. The rest seized the servants, mistreated them, and killed them. Now that mistreatment line can stand for a lot of things, a lot of them very ugly. Some people are just too busy with um, their ingratitude of enjoying the kingdom without paying any honor, honor to the king. Again, you can interpret that pretty easily. Um, oh gosh, the phone's just ringing off the hook. Well, the king is enraged. And so he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Wow. Uh, it's strange to us, but Jesus' audience would have find this, found this completely normal. Everyone in the Roman Empire knew exactly what it would mean to defy Caesar. Anybody in the ancient world would understand exactly what it would mean to, let's say, withhold tribute and to not show up to the banquet of the wedding of the son of the king is at that level. Um, the rebellions are put down and the rebels are utterly destroyed. Now, now, the king's response seems measured here because the murderers are killed and their property and lineage destroyed. But um, is there perhaps a different standard that are held to those who are just sort of blithely ignoring in ingratitude um, what, the, what, what is happening with the king? 
Now, the whole picture is very clear, but again, you have the strange thing. You have the king and you have the son, but, but who's the bride? Well, then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I have invited did not deserve to come. Hmm, who did he invite? Well, he likely invited the nobility. And, and you can see now here the setup for Palm Sunday because, of course, it will be the powerful of the city, the religious leaders and the authorities who will object to the commotion that is made for the entrance of Jesus. And it will be the small people, the little people, the people who don't have titles or names or property or anything, the people who probably would... Um, have a bit less gratitude for the king because they probably haven't received as much directly from the king. There's an obligation to glory that even the king must uphold, and the king has a problem. I wonder where the bride is in this. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. In other words, I am not going to have an empty wedding hall. And so go out and get the people, the bad, the good, anyone available, bring them in and get them going. The workers, the beggars, the sojourners, anyone from the street, bring them in, and we're going to have a celebration. And in all likelihood, the level of gratitude and the level of celebration will outpace it. The nobility would likely, well, they're used to eating meat, but the poor and the lame and the commoners and the workers, they could have never imagined to be invited to such a feast. This is, this is, this is beyond their dreams. They aren't the wealthy. They aren't the powerful. They aren't the beautiful. They aren't the moral. Um, this is an unexpected opportunity that the lowly would not fail to pick up on. They don't need to be asked twice. They're going. This just doesn't happen. Oh, this mouse keeps forwarding my slides. There we go. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was wearing not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? Notice how courteous the king is. The man was speechless. Notice how without excuse the man is. Now, this has a long history of interpretation that includes the uh, righteousness, the weeds and the weed, all sorts of things throughout the history of the church. The king is achieving glory, and the rebellion can happen outside the banquet halls, but can also happen within the palace, too. It's not only nobility that rebel. Now, the story's a little ambiguous. Is this someone who um, hasn't received wedding clothes or who came without their best attire or who came in dirty clothing? But what's clear is that this is, again, an insult. And in some ways, this insult leads to the loss of glory and the loss of the purpose and intent of the party. Now, even the generous king will not allow rebellion outside or inside the hall, and even this rebel is given an opportunity to explain the lack of decorum. And what follows is analogous to what followed with the others who were invited and didn't come. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
I often hear people say things about the God of the Old Testament, and I think they don't really read the New Testament terribly carefully either. God is both more generous than we think is responsible and demanding, more demanding than we think is reasonable. And this is obviously a picture of outer darkness, or some might call it hell. Um, this person is thrown out. He basically gets what the rebels and the rebel cities got. Um, for a time, the king tolerates the indifferent and the rebellious in hopes that they will join the party. And Jesus has many stories about parties. In fact, some of his most hellish scenes come in conjunction with his scenes of great party, partying and feasting. There is an outer darkness, a locked door to prevent the permanent disruption of glory that must come. Where is the bride, though? Where is she? Again, she's, she's seemingly absent from this story. Or is she? And then this ends with a little proverb, which is kind of a puzzle. For many are called, but few are elect. And that sounds funny because called sounds like elect. And, and, and who are the elect but those, obviously, who are there in the party? So how does this work? This is sort of a puzzle within the puzzle. And it bounces back and forth now within the world of the story to sort of provoke and disturb us because we read this story and we live into this story and we sort of furnish the story with all sorts of imaginations from our own world and then suddenly called, okay, elect? Where are they? Who are they? Um, the, the high and the low of the land were obviously, well, the high were invited first and they didn't want to come, and then the low of the land were invited and they came in joyously. But who was chosen? Who was elect? Can we only recognize them from their wedding garments? And what do we mean by those garments? Now, I want to ask the question, what would Peter do? Um, I posted on my channel the, uh, the, the final draft for my vacation, and I gave it a new title, Peter's Satanically Reasonable Plan for Jesus' Messianic Success Dissolves in the Light of the Sun. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. What would Peter do? The nobility, the learned, the powerful, the wealthy, the elite, oh, the son of the king, their fealty. Hmm. Peter would certainly agree with all of this. But if they don't give it, their city will be destroyed. This is exactly what Jesus says would happen. What about Palm Sunday? This is already a story about Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday will act out this parable in, in many ways. Who is the bride anyway? This is a wedding banquet. This isn't just a normal party. This is a wedding banquet. Now, we should also ask, who's the groom? Well, that, well, that seems obvious, but parables are really funny this way. Jesus is clearly the groom. And his father is clearly the great king. But who is the bride? Well, we might think the church as the bride. And parables, well, this is sort of a question that, well, what will the groom do for the bride? Because, well, isn't the bride also those people who are called and those people who are chosen? This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. 
And well, well, how on earth does this fit into what will in fact happen after Palm Sunday, where the prince of the city is killed by the city? And 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 won't that's a previous parable, won't won't the great king come and destroy the city? Well, the city will be destroyed. To what lengths will the prince of the kingdom go to seek and save the lost? What will he and won't he do for his bride? And who is his bride? And where is his bride? All of these questions sort of linger in the story. And of course, when Jesus is put up on that cross, the mockers will say, he saved others, he cannot save himself. And what they won't see is that he was saving his bride by not saving himself. Now, this is a great story, and you can sort of apply it in all different places. You can apply it to the church, and for two millennia now, preachers have been doing that and filling in people all over the parable to sort of make the parable work for the audience that has listened to it. So you might ask, well, where are we in the story? And we might ask, what is that invitation into, and are we responding? Are we the nobility, who are busy with the, the, the great tracts of land that the great king has, has given us as, as, as feudal lords? Are we the poor and the beggars and the people of the street who have been invited to the kind of party we have never seen anywhere in our life? Maybe this is why certain kinds of people come to Jesus and certain kinds of people prioritize the attention of the king. Are we holding the door open as long as possible? Are we going out and compelling people, inviting them? You never thought you'd get in party, invited to a party like this, but this is yours where you're best. Are we hosting? Are we the bride? Are we at the feast? On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body. This is the beginning of the feast. These are the lengths that the prince will go to to win his bride. Will you come?